Well, just to tell you a little bit about the area in which we live, we live in a little city called California, Maryland. And in particularly in our area, we have a heavy Navy community. And most days you won't notice that we have a very heavy, heavy naval community until uh, Memorial Day, which is one of the few days of the year when you feel that Navy proud all around you wherever you go. And you might guess it's because people wear their uniforms and all the things, but it's actually not. It's mostly because of this one thing called the Murph Challenge. For two years, I called it the Morph Challenge the morphing challenge, until someone had to correct me and say, that's not it, that's not right. It's the Murph challenge. You may have heard of it. The Murph challenge is a, basically an intense, intense workout uh, set out in honor of this one guy named Lieutenant Michael P. Murphy. And his story is actually quite amazing. Lieutenant Michael P. Murphy uh, was the officer in charge of a four-man SEAL team, and their mission was to find an enemy leader in Afghanistan. Shortly after arriving in the area, uh, the team was spotted by three goat herders who were just passing by. Now, today it is believed that it was these goat herders who immediately reported the SEAL team's position to the Taliban fighters. Immediately, uh, a, a fierce gun battle began on the steep faces of the mountain between the four-man team and a much, much larger militia force. Now, due to the mountain terrain, there was very poor reception uh, and uh, the lieutenant could not make contact with HQ to request for an evacuation. So what they needed to do was for someone to get to higher open ground for a better reception while exposing themselves to enemy fire. Uh, this was obviously a suicide mission. Now, the men didn't need to draw straws or they didn't need to play uh, rock, paper, scissors to see who would go because immediately Lieutenant Murphy, without hesitation, moved away from the protective rocks, knowingly exposed himself to increased enemy gunfire and immediately became a target practice for soldiers with rifles. As the bullets were flying around him, Lieutenant Murphy managed to make contact with HQ and he requested assistance. And during his, his call, at one point, he was shot several times in the back, causing him to drop the transmitter, but he casually just picked it back up and finished the call to give enough time for his men to escape. Now, Lieutenant Murphy fought bravely, and, but unfortunately, only one member of his uh, three-man team managed to escape safely before he himself was killed. Lieutenant Murphy was selfless, he was brave, he was sacrificial, and he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And today, many, many on Memorial Day honor him and his sacrifice and his memory through this one thing called the Murph Challenge. Now, occasionally we hear stories like this and they wow us. And they also make us wonder how we would have conducted ourselves in the same situation. What if we were in the same shoes as Lieutenant Murphy? It makes us reflect and measure ourselves against the ideals of selflessness, strength, and bravery. I mean, we all want to live lives of integrity. We all want to live lives of honor and sacrifice. We all want our kids to remember that we lived a good, sacrificial, honoring life. But the question is, when the time comes, 
Will we be faithful to those virtues, or will they go out the window? I mean, we would like to believe that we would measure up, that we would rise to the occasion and uphold our integrity. Well, in our passage this morning, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is writing to a particular group of Christians. These were exiled Christians. Now, to be an exile means that your home and your possessions and your friends and your family and your culture and your food and your peace and stability, all the things that give you a sense of security in life have been removed from you, not by choice, but oftentimes by force. And these exiles had to make a choice. See, having been exiled from their homes and as their lives were sinking, the question became, will they adopt an every man for themselves motto or will they rise to the call of their Lord? Because you see, they had practical questions on how to live as Christians. They had questions such as, what does my Christianity look like when you don't have a building to worship in or pastors around you? Does worship still matter when your neighbors are going to temples? Or does evangelism even matter when you can't really invite people to church? They had questions such as, how do you maintain Christian values when you live among people who don't know God, don't care, and the advice is just to indulge in the culture, to survive by all means? But also, how do you interact and live among people who mock you, who are hostile against you, especially for your beliefs? Now, in order to strengthen the believer's resolve, to rise to the call. Peter, the apostle Peter, being a good pastor, he offers this gospel promise. He wants to promise them that you are Jesus' great treasure. So stand on him as your cornerstone. You are Jesus' great treasure. So stand on him as your cornerstone. More specifically, when things get tough, Jesus' love leads us to pay closer attention to three things. And they're this, church membership, ministry, and a life of mercy. Church membership, ministry, and a life of mercy. So let me unpack these things as we go through our texts uh, this morning. So first, church membership. Now, the regions these Christians were being exiled to can be found in verse 1 in the first chapter. It was, it was where we call today as modern-day Turkey. But what you need to know about at the time, modern-day Turkey had little to nothing. It was the boonies. They were moved from most likely the great city of Rome, where Christianity was flourishing, where there were church plants happening, where you could witness pastors like the Apostle Paul and Peter and Pastor Andrew, not your Andrew, but the one that lived 2,000 plus years ago. You could witness these great pastors standing up to the Pharisees and sit under their preaching. I mean, Rome was a city of martyrdom where Christians would hear stories after stories of people giving their lives for Jesus. If there was ever a place where the presence of, of God's Spirit was at work, it was Rome. Now, I'm not saying that it was easy to be a Christian in Rome, but I am saying that it was encouraging because the church was there. Your leaders were there. The buildings were there. See, Rome was where the church action was happening. But what happens when you're removed from it all? What happens when the stories, your pastors, your, your teachers, your buildings, you're removed from it by at least 200 miles away? 
Well, one natural effect is for Christians' commitment to the church to grow cold. It's easy for church membership to grow cold when the pastors and the buildings and the stories are so, so far away across the sea. Or perhaps maybe in our context today as more and more churches are having live streams that the church and the pastors are over there. Well, Peter gives us two motivations in verse 4 to pay close, uh, close attention to church membership. One is theological and the other one is practical. So let me, look, look, let's look at verse 4 together. He says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter first gives a theological answer by making the point that the church is not a building or super pastors and their staff, but a people coming together. Now, let me explain how Peter is able to say this. In the Old Testament, as many of you may know, the Old Testament, the tabernacle, was a spiritual place, house, where God chose to be in so that he could be in the midst of his people. Now, when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, the presence of God moved with the people as they carried the tabernacle throughout their journey. Eventually, the tabernacle was replaced by a temple. Now, the temple was where the people could go to be in the presence of God. And the deeper you went into the center of the building, you were getting closer and closer into God's very own presence. Only one person, the high priest, was allowed to go in to the center of the center room once a year. In the Old Testament, God confined himself to a particular spiritual house with walls and a roof and a ceiling. But this was only temporary because in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2 to 3, God gives this promise that one day his presence will no longer be confined to a small section of a building, but in people's hearts. In other words, God's spiritual house will not be made of dead stones that can't talk. But living stones who breathe, who talk, and who walk, namely people. Well, what changed? Peter tells us in verse 4 that when Jesus was rejected by men. Now, what he means is that he, he was crucified and he paid the penalty for our sins once and for all. And by doing so, he makes our hearts home for his spirit to dwell in. So that the church is built by the testimonies and the prayers and the singings and the confessions of faith of the people of God. And thus God's dwelling place is not made of dead stones anymore, but by the flesh and bones of his saints. Now, at the very least, this means this, that if you're a Christian who's able to worship with the people of God in person, your presence and your membership matters. See, a stone on its own is not a house. Likewise, a believer in isolation is not the church. Now, I do recognize that before and since COVID, in-person attendance has been difficult for some, especially if you have health concerns. And the church grieves with and for you. If you're anything like my home church, Cornerstone, there are certainly members who may fall in that camp. And if you're listening Knowing, um, knowing that one of your core values as a Cornerstone Church is community fostering, I'm certain that your church misses you and they pray for the day when you'll get to worship together. But otherwise, brothers and sisters, your membership and your participation matters because that's how God intends to build His church. 
Will you rise to the occasion? But secondly, Peter offers a practical reason for church membership, and that is that change and growth happen in membership to community. So you notice that this spiritual house is made of living stones. Now, the picture we get is not one where stones are spaced out, but they are pressed closely below and side to side. They're joined to one another. One Bible commentator explained it like this. He said, the imagery of the living stones being built into a single unit, uh, unit implies the significance and purpose of individual Christians cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. In simple, Christians who desire to be more like Jesus need people outside of themselves and your families. Let me explain it like this. There's this movie that came out in the 80s called Top Gun. Maybe some of you watched it recently in preparation for the sequel. And if you haven't watched it, I'm about to ruin the movie for you, but I don't feel as bad because it's been out for like 20 years. But Top Gun, it follows the story of Maverick, a young, daring Navy pilot who's out to prove that he's the best pilot in his class. Now, his ego happens to irritate another pilot in his class called Iceman. Now, Maverick and Iceman are complete opposites. Maverick is a loose cannon who feels the need, the need for speed. And Iceman is by the book. And throughout the movie, they clash over and over in the classroom, in flight, and even in beach volleyball. Now, it's clear that Iceman and Maverick do not like each other one bit. However, through the clashing, throughout the movie, or even though they couldn't stand each other, but by the end of the movie, Iceman says to Maverick, one of the cheesiest lines in movie history, you can be my wingman anytime. Now, what made him say that? It's because they both realize that they're better pilots because of each other. At the end of the movie, they realize that as the Navy pressed them together, there was a process of refinement in their character and skill that would not have happened without the other. To put it simply, why should we care about church membership and participation? Because your growth and Christ-likeness happens best when Maverick meets Iceman. When brothers are joined to other brothers, when sisters are in accountability with other sisters, when leadership is encouraged by its members, and members are cared and served for by their church officers, this is a spiritual house God delights to dwell in. This is how heart transformation happens. See, a living stone is good, but a spiritual house is better. Now, if you've ever gone hiking, you may have seen along the trail a pile of stones neatly stacked on top of each other. Um, it's called a cairn. I didn't know it had a name, but it's called a cairn. Now, there's a beauty to them, isn't there? So much so that you don't dare knock them down because you might bring a curse upon yourself. But instead, if there's room, what do you do? You look for not any stone, but the right stone to build it up. Let me say it like this. Each Christian is too precious of a stone for God to not use in his building project. Your brother and your sister in the church have been carefully selected by God and placed above, below, side to side, so that together you may radiate the beauty that you could not achieve on your own. Now, what is the measure of Christ's love for the church membership? It's long and it's wide. When things get tough, he calls us to pay close attention to it as it's his gift for us. 
Secondly, not only is there a need to pay close attention in church membership, but also on our Christian ministry, which is our second point. Peter moves on to address a very possible question the exiles may have, and that is that if we're in a new place, and if there are no pastors here and preachers, who will do the ministry? And his answer is, you. Look at the second half of verse 4 to 5 with me. He tells them, you're being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then again in verse 9, he continues, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, in this remarkable statement, Peter wants to dispel the myth that there's a separation between holy work and regular work. That there's a hierarchy of Christians within the church who are more spiritual because of the type of work they do, and everybody else is just a regular church member. Because for Peter, there is no such thing as a regular church member. But all Christians are priests. And this is an astounding statement because in the Old Testament, the role of priests was only reserved to a few of the proud, the priests. But now the status and role has been expanded for all believers. Now, Peter here is quoting from Exodus 19, where one day God promises to make his people a kingdom of, of priests. And this kingdom of priests will be his greatest possession. Now, for Peter, this happened when Jesus went to the cross for you. Because when Jesus went to the cross for you, he showed you that you were far too precious just to be a regular church member. That he didn't die for different tiers of Christians, but rather that every single living stone that comes to him is a royal pivotal stone. What this means then is that there is no such thing as holy and non-holy work, nor is there such a thing between super Christians and regular church members. Because you see in Christ, from the youngest to the oldest, from the weakest to the strongest, from the sick to the healthiest, from the richest to the poorest, you are a holy priest. So ministry is not just the things that happen in the church done by a few. Ministry is rather also at home when you lovingly care for your family. Ministry is at work when you treat people with dignity and let your speech be gracious and gentle. Ministry is in your internet presence, how you use words with wisdom to encourage and not slander. Ministry is in your leisure when you enjoy things with thanksgiving without indulging. Ministry is in your budget when you give sacrificially and generously, not out of duty or pity. Ministry is in your marriage when you're the first to forgive and not hold past wrongs as ammunition for the future. See, ministries when you're coaching sports, when you host a dinner party, it's everything you do because it's who you are. You're a priest, and as a priest, you're a window for others to see the beauty of Jesus. Now, recently I heard someone say um, that for some, some people in your life were not Christians, for them, you might be the only Bible they'll ever read. As priest, every single Christian is called to keep a close eye on ministering in all areas of life. 
But there's also a little bit of a caution as Peter uses this imagery of a priest uh, seeking to do ministry. And that is that priests, although they performed holy duties, if you read Leviticus, that long uh, book in the Bible where we usually skip it, but if you take the time to actually read it, there was a long process that before any of their good work began, these priests had to go through a personal ritual to make sure that they were clean. Now, for the sake of time, let me summarize like this. Some of you in this room, you're very good at checking the boxes of being a good husband, good father, good worker, good friend, good son, good daughter, good citizen, you name it, you fill in the gap. You have a very strong moral compass. You know what's wrong, you know what's right. This image of priests cautions us to pay careful attention to our good acts because it is in the moments when we are right, when we do good, that our hearts are most susceptible to pride. It is usually when you're right in an argument that you feel the greatest temptation to judge the other person as an idiot. It is when you've done all your spousal duties perfectly, when you feel the greatest temptation to now feel entitled. It is when you've just worked diligently throughout the week when you now feel the temptation to be stingy with your money and your, and your time. Like Icarus flying too close to the sun only to get burned, as priests, Peter reminds us to keep a close watch over our motives in ministry and in our lives to make sure that we repent, not just for the bad things that we do, but even for the good things that we do for ourselves. Now, this is a very high bar for exiled Christians, and maybe even for us today. Where is the power to live like this? Which is why Peter concludes his letter by asking the exiled Christians to pay close attention to mercy. For the closer we look at mercy, it helps us commit to one another, and it helps us to live as priests. So let's look at that, mercy. From verse 10 to 12, Peter's focus for Christians is mercy. Now you have to ask the question, why? Because unlike today, where we as a society have come to cherish mercy and mercy ministry is a good thing, and even you don't have to be a Christian to, know, to say that mercy can be a good thing. Back in Roman times, that was not the norm. Plato, for example, thought that children should only be allowed to live if they were malleable, disposed to virtue, and physically fit. If not, parents, you had a moral responsibility for the good of society and the life quality of your child to dispose of them, and it was often referred to as mercy killing. In terms of healthcare, what was healthcare like? Well, in Roman healthcare system, it was only available to soldiers or people who could contribute economically to the empire. Otherwise, mercy for the jobless and the sick uh, meant a quick death. Now, how could Rome, as one of the most advanced societies at the time, come to this conclusion of mercy? Some believe it comes from the founding story of Rome. It was believed that once upon a time, there were two brothers, Romulus and Remus, who got into an argument as to who would rule this new city that they were building. It was more merciful to spare you of the weaker one. So Romulus eventually kills his brother and gives birth to a city where the weak die 
and the strong live. This is why Peter in verse 10, he says that for Christians, that is not our story. Look what it says. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is Peter saying? The Christians have a different founding story. That our origin story is not vengeance, but mercy. When there was a clash between two brothers, the older brother, instead of squashing the other, he lays down his life. See, for Christians, Jesus' death gives birth to a city where the strong dies so the weak could live. Where mercy is not for the strong, but for the weak. And at the time, this would have sounded absurd, especially if you were in exile. Here's why. Because it was a dog-eat-dog world. But Peter says in verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, verse 6 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 28, 28, verse 16. And we're about to do a little bit of Old Testament lifting, so stay with me. In Isaiah 28, God is declaring judgment over the nation of Ephraim. Not a pagan nation, but an but a, a Israelite nation. Because the rich, the beautiful, and powerful people of Ephraim only took care of themselves. And in verse 7, even the prophets and the priests, who ought to have been the chief promoters of mercy, were getting drunk and vomiting all over the table, leaving no room for others to sit and experience hospitality. In simple, God's people in, in uh, Isaiah 28 were building a nation with the foundations of comfort, wealth, and power, and the beautiful. Why? Because Weakness is repulsive. Humility is a disadvantage. Mercy is dead weight. And this is what every society was doing at the time. And I would argue even today to some degrees. You know, the, the World Cup is only a few months away. And, every, and what happens every four years when the World Cup uh, takes place um, is that countries will call back their best players who are playing internationally overseas to come home. Why? To form the strongest possible national team ever. Korea has not called me back yet. Neither has the U.S. That's for two for two. I mean, if you're going to build a rival civilization, if you're going to build an A-team, you would pick the most expensive stones, be more selective on your citizenship. Cast the weak out, keep the strong, build a large army and economy. It's a, so it's shocking when God in verse 16 decides to build a nation and for his first pick of the draft, his first pick, Peter says in verse 7, his cornerstone is the very one rejected by men. Now, how is Jesus rejected by men? Well, Jesus was born in a manger, not a palace. His father was a carpenter. He was not a government official or a king. His mother was the gossip of town. Jesus' followers were not educated men. They were fishermen. In the eyes of the world, Jesus was the last pick. But in the eyes of God, he was the precious cornerstone. Because when Jesus' life becomes the cornerstone of the people of a nation, mercy becomes the national anthem. It becomes what people sing about. 
You see, God picks a cornerstone that's not afraid to welcome the sick, the weak, and the sinner. He picks a cornerstone that brings offense to the self-righteous and the strong and a stumbling block to the proud. And through this cornerstone, when people stand on it, God builds a nation where mercy reigns. We know this is not theoretical because in the next 200 years after this letter was written, a new wave of hospitals created by Christians began emerging throughout Rome and Asia Minor. David Bentley Hart, a religion and philosopher scholar, he lists a few of the examples for us. He says, St. Ephraim the Syrian, when the city of Edessa was ravaged by plague, established hospitals open to all who were afflicted. Basil the Great founded a hospital in Cappadocia with a ward set aside for the care of lepers, whom he did not disdain to nurse with his own hands. St. Benedict of Nursia opened a free infirmary in Monte Cassino and made care of the sick a paramount duty of his monks. In Rome, the Christian noblewoman and scholar St. Fabiola established the first public hospital in Western Europe and despite her wealth and position, often ventured out in the streets personally to seek out those who needed care. St. John Chrysostom, while Patriarch of Constantinople, used his influence to fund several such institutions in the city and the list goes on and on and on and I'll spare you of those. Over time, it was Christians who changed the definition of mercy. It was a Christian story, Jesus as the cornerstone, which gave rise to a fundamental value that mercy for the weak and the least in society is a beautiful thing to do. And I dare say that for you as a church, how would you know that in the long run that cornerstones, cornerstone is Jesus? When mercy flows from its members who are committed to each other. Now, as many of you know, July 4th is Independence Day, and some would say that the essence of being an American is to value and fight for freedom. The national anthem makes that clear. But for the Christian, more than freedom, our national anthem is mercy and grace. We know how to value and fight for mercy. Now, when you hear the word mercy, you directly, some of you think of mercy ministry, you know, donating this, helping out the community. And those are good things. That's a good definition of mercy. But when mercy becomes your origin story, your cornerstone, it also begins trickling into your daily life. If you're married, there will be moments when your spouse will have done you wrong. If your origin story is one of vengeance, you'll beat them over the head with guilt. But if it's mercy, you'll beat them first to offering forgiveness. If you have a boss at work, there will be moments when you'll feel disrespected and unappreciated by them. If your origin story is one of getting ahead in life and success, you'll jump at the next chance to shame them and then criticize them among other people. But if it's mercy, next time your coworkers are complaining, you'll use it to defend them. If your origin story is one of results and productivity and getting ahead of life, next time you feel people in your life who have made a mistake or they're just slowing you down, you'll be quick to point the finger and cut them out. But if it's mercy, you'll be more willing to put your arms around them, encourage them, and be willing to work with them at a slower pace. Friends, where comes the power to love and minister to others? When our cornerstone is mercy, 
when our hearts never lose sight of God's mercy for us, that in Christ, God sees us in delight only because Jesus was looked on in wrath by the Father. Only then will we be drawn to show mercy, not towards the strong, but the weak, the ones at fault, and I dare, dare say even our enemies, will be drawn to open our doors to those who the society wants to keep out. Now, let me offer just one more application to chew on. And I want to be careful with this because I love this church. I love your leadership here. And I would like to be invited back, if not to preach, at least to worship with you guys. But I also want to be careful with this because I know that I can be a very poor communicator. About a month ago, the Supreme Court made the decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. And as Christians in America, we find a lot of encouragement over this ruling. But let me challenge you with this. The second half of verse 12 reminds us, Peter reminds us, that saving a physical life is not the ultimate goal of mercy ministry. It's spiritual. This means that the work is still ongoing, that we're called to extend mercy on pro-choice people as they grieve this decision and not rub it all over their face. That means not slandering them or shaming them. See, mercy is showing gentleness and kindness. It is withholding judgment and retaliation, all in the hopes so that they will come to know Jesus and not in the hopes that they will just agree with you on a subject. It means that we not only see the unborn as preciously made in the image of God, but also people on the other side of the debate as well. So let our words and demeanors towards them be full of mercy in hopes that they will be led to Christ. Here's another thing to consider. In light of this decision, it means that we as a people of mercy, we should seek out ways to be involved in young women's lives now. It means making it as simple as making it a prayer request for God to bring into your life someone in need of mercy and support. Because I think honestly, quite often when we get rulings like this, we look around and many for us, for some of us in our lives, we don't know someone who's struggling in this way. But mercy means that you even pray for it. You request it. Why? And we, because we ask for the opportunity to do mercy not for physical salvation, but spiritual. We hope that people will meet Jesus through us and see that our mercy has no ends towards friend or towards foe because Jesus as our cornerstone, Jesus as our ground zero, Jesus as our origin story, his mercies never ever come to an end. Church, you are a royal priesthood. You are Christ's treasure possession. People born from mercy for mercy. Stand on him as your cornerstone. Come to him together as living stones. And when history remembers the church in Lansdale, the church will not be put to shame. Let's go to God in prayer.